This is Thoughts on the Table by DisgracesOnTheMenu.com. Hello and welcome to Thoughts on the Table, the audio blog on food and food culture. Paolo here again, your host, after a little break. And uh, my guest today is Diana Pinto. Hi, Diana. Welcome. Hi, Ela. Happy to be here. <laughs> Fantastic to have you, Diana. Oh, boy. People listening should know that we've been working on this episode for quite some time. So we're going to jump right in. But first, a little cross-promotion here. Stay with us. Do you love true crime and food? I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And we're the co-hosts of Dietetics After Dark, the podcast where true crime meets food. In each episode, we cover a wide range of fascinating topics like food poisonings, industry deception, food fraud, nutrition scandal, and in some cases, even murder. And as consumers, these stories have the potential to impact all of us. Becca and I use our backgrounds in nutrition and criminology to bring you a new food scandal every second Monday and a bite-sized episode featuring nutrition in the news every second Thursday. Each story will entertain, educate, and amaze you and probably leave you a little hungry. Or not. So if you're interested in true crime and the things that you eat, go hit subscribe now. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And stay up to date by following us on Instagram at Dietetics After Dark. And we're back. Thanks so much for listening to that. So as I was saying, we had so many ideas and we started brainstorming. Uh, we went in many different directions, but we found then a theme I think that would be great to discuss together today. So Diana, for those who don't know you, can you please introduce yourself? Thank you. So yes, I'm Diana. I am American. I was born in the United States, but my parents both are from Italy. They are from Lazio. Mm -hmm. My dad's from Rome. My mom's from Sabaudia in the very south of Lazio on the coast. Mm -hmm. And they came over to the US about five years before I was born. And I was very lucky to be able to go back to Italy every winter for Christmas, at least once a year, um, to see my family and to have Italy be a part of my upbringing and my life mm -hmm. at home. And I... I'm a student. I'm a college student. I'm a very non-traditional student. I am studying opera oh, nice. and American studies. It's a double major, kind of an unusual combo, mm -hmm. but you know, I had to follow things that interest me. And um, yeah, uh, so I'm in California now. I actually have been living in California since I was about the age of six. Mm -hmm. So I guess that you could say that I grew up here, but I've been all over the West of the United States. That's a lot to get into. So I won't. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, of course, your Italian uh, roots and uh, from your videos, I know your Italian accent is excellent. So in fact, I thought you were bilingual, like I thought you grew up bilingual, but it turns out that no, you didn't really speak Italian uh, fluently until you, you know, put your head down and learned it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I had a, a very good head start as a kid. Mm -hmm. I experienced a phenomenon that a lot of children of immigrants experience, which is that the parents are a little insecure about having the children speak the native or the home language in the mm -hmm. house because they were concerned that I would struggle with English or have an accent. And because those are things that are very important to them in trying to assimilate into America and into American culture, 
they didn't want me to deal with that either. And also there was not a lot of understanding about the fact that kids can very easily absorb two languages. That being said, it's not as though Italian was banned in our house. We had plenty of exposure to the language. All of my extended family speaks only Italian for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I had to communicate with them somehow. And, you know, we listened to some Italian music. We had Rai at home in the United States for better or worse. (laughs) Um, We had um, a lot of exposure and there were some things that we said always in Italian, you know, a tavola, Mm -hmm. buon appetito, you know, permesso, all those little things that are very normal, even in an Italian home in Italy. So I was able to absorb the accent pretty well, although Mm -hmm. I have no idea where my accent comes from because it's, I don't think it's Roman, even though my parents are from there. Um, But I learned a decent vocabulary. It was just the grammar that needed to be tied together because I don't speak Italian all day, every day. I'm not in an environment where I have to. And so through a combination of college classes and my own study, I've been able to get as far as I have, which I'm very proud of. But someday it is my dream to be able to go back, stay with my family, maybe immerse myself and really tie it all together because I have to really be disciplined to keep going. (laughs) Exactly. It takes constant practice. Obviously, it's easy for me to keep practicing English. I've been practicing for 20 years, obviously, but uh, in an English-speaking country. Um, So, yeah, it's really admirable that you were able to get this far without really uh, (laughs) being immersed. Uh, So, yes, amazing stuff, amazing stuff. Um, Anyway, let's get on the theme for this episode, which is... Are there original recipes for iconic, traditional Italian dishes? Like, we all talk about these things like carbonara, amatriciana, arrabbiata. But can we really find a recipe for these things? (laughs) So, uh, that's a very good question, right? Yeah, no, it is. And, And I think it's important to distinguish when we say original recipes, I think that you know, the word originale tends to be the one that's used most of the time in Italy. And I think it overlaps with the concept of authenticity and authentic Mm -hmm. recipe. And that's generally what people in America or English speaking countries tend to crave. We all want that authentic recipe. Once you're a passionate home cook, or you're passionate about learning about this cuisine, everyone wants that authentic experience because it makes you feel like you're really living the way that Italians do. And that's a very appealing thing. But I I mean, first, I need to make absolutely clear, I am not a scholar as much as I could be. Uh, I'm maybe on my way, but I stumbled onto these themes somewhat by accident, because I am a passionate home cook. It's something that I've always liked to do. I was very lucky to grow up in a household where cooking every day was normal. And Mm -hmm. so I was never afraid to try it. That's not to say that I was always great, but I immediately connected with Italian food once I was living on my own, because it's something that is important to me to keep going, just like the language, just like the culture. Um, And food is a huge extension of that. And I decided I wanted to start looking at original sources in Italian, because there are plenty of English language books, either translated directly from Italian books or 
English books that are only available in English speaking countries that are written by, you know, trusted sources or mm-hmm. non-trusted sources, <laughs> depending. depending um, yeah, exactly. Um, but I started to become interested in getting into Italian recipes for this very reason, because it is a little difficult when you're abroad to know for sure and trust a source. How do you know that mm-hmm. what you're getting is the real thing? So I thought that that's where I could get it. It was from Italian books and online recipes as well. Mm-hmm. That's a very good, uh, very good approach. And you also use your skills, your language skills there, because uh, clearly um, reading an Italian cookbook written in Italian is actually quite challenging. It's challenging for Italians too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But um, it's an excellent way. And probably one of the main ways that I end up maintaining reading in Italian is mm. through recipes. So having constant contact with that, because if you're cooking every day or you're planning to cook, mm-hmm. um, you're always, you have to be able to understand what you're reading. You know, logically speaking, I, I was always aware that somehow things get lost in translation mm-hmm. when they're brought over and they're imported. And I wouldn't say that I was starting to get skeptical. I was just craving something more. You know, in English language, we have things like The Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking by Marcella Hazan. That's yes. one of the very respected yes. ones in the United States. Mm-hmm. I know Anna del Conte is very well uh, respected in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the Italian language ones, things like um, the Pellegrino Artusi, La Scienza in Cucina e l'Arte di Mangiar Bene. Then there's um, Adaboni. Mm -hmm. uh, which actually is an example of a book that was translated into English. You can find an edition from the fifties that, I mean, you can find it in every single antique store in the United States, highly abridged, highly altered. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so, um, but the Italian language version is, is very well respected. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. these classics, the Italian language sources are, massively expensive to get in the United States. Uh, you, you go on eBay, which is my addiction. I need to stop, but they, <laughs> they keep pulling me back. But, um, you know, you, you can even see the Cucchiaio d'Argento books, mm-hmm, the original mm-hmm. Italian ones going for like $150. Yeah. They're just, it's a scam. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Taking advantage. It, it can't, yeah, I mean, especially if you go to Italy and you go to a secondhand store, you could probably find it for like pennies almost. But, um, you know, and that goes also for La Scienza in Cucina and L'Arte di Mangiar Bene and Il Talismano. Yeah, so I have my experience with Pellegrino Artusi. I actually listened to an audio book um, on uh, <laughs> reading the recipes. And, and it's possible because, because Pellegrino has this way of telling you who the recipe is suited for. Like there are recipes for people who are ill, ricette per gli ammalati. And, uh, I see um, that in a lot of the older books, for sure. Yeah, yeah and mm-hmm. almost like medical and, um, you know, this balance, this, this prescriptive way of, um, you know, those who ate too much the day before must have just black coffee until such time where their stomach mm-hmm. will feel empty and you should not touch any solid food until then you know this is really fascinating to me Pellegrino talks a lot about the food that he was uh, familiar with he lived in Tuscany so um, there's a lot of Tuscan uh, dishes there 
and uh, it does talk about gnocchi. It talks about also risotto alla milanese, and it gives a few versions of those iconic dishes, which were iconic at uh, the time when he wrote the book, which is 1891. So they were already a thing, at least uh, in Italy, um, and uh, multiple recipes already existed, so Pellegrino didn't know which one to pick. So, yeah, definitely an interesting approach, the one to go and find these books, which happen to have captured a snapshot when things were maybe more pure, and the popularity wasn't influenced as much by, say, something going viral or, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, the dish being pretty and photographing really well. Oh, yeah. I've seen one star review on Amazon for books. They're like, it didn't have pictures, one right. star. I'm like, this is Come okay. On. Don't don't pick up the older books then. <laughs> exactly. If you're looking for beautiful photos, it's not going to happen. No photos or terrible photos. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, scare. I've seen lots of scary 70s food photography in my time, which is hilarious because it's something that's associated with American vintage cooking, which yeah. is kind of a cool phenomenon to observe. Mm-hmm. But it's in Italy, too. Okay. It's not just an American thing, the crazy food photography. Anyway, um, what happened with the cookbooks is that I found myself curious about comparing certain recipes within all of my books just to see how they varied because there's this impression Mm -hmm. that you know you have to go back to the sources in Italy if you want to understand the original recipes or these authentic recipes and that implication leads you to think that if you're Italian you will automatically be making things in just one way and a way that respects the tradition. But there are variations of these recipes all over the place. And I tend to use a couple as benchmarks like carbonara, which you'll probably hear me say a lot in this, <laughs> um, or bucatina matriciana as well. And, you know, I see things that are vehemently um, chastised by Italians as being Americanizations or foreign um, insertions into recipes within Italian sources. So Mm. it was something that made me wonder, (laughs) you know, what do we believe about authenticity? So, for instance, if I remember correctly, you mentioned that you did find traces of cream in carbonara. Is is that, is that, so this was a scandalous thing that, you know, went viral. Um, Italians were appalled. I guess it was the French doing that, I believe. So that started a real fight. <laughs> and uh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it turns <laughs> out, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not completely crazy uh, to, to do that. In fact, somebody did that. Maybe what's happening uh, these days is a bit of a return to a simpler version and reduce the number of ingredients. Generally, is excluding, removing stuff, which yeah. is probably um, a good thing uh, because, again, um, Italian food is actually known for its simplicity and uh, cream is not essential, so it can probably be removed. So again, maybe that's what's happening. But see, we're theorizing here. You instead went on to a a different approach, like I want to find some references, some uh, evidence of what is carbonara, really. Can I go back in time and find a version? Well, yeah, I think that's the first assumption is that you have to work back chronologically. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 
with the implication that these recipes become bastardized over time as they go abroad. So, okay, mm-hmm. let's see how far back we can go. And uh, again, I'm using carbonara as an example. This is not a deep dive into carbonara. <laughs> this is not what the episode's about. But, you know, it's it's a relatively recent recipe mm-hmm. or at least yeah. relatively recently recorded. So, um it shouldn't be too hard to find the original sources. Now, I will say I don't have any books from the 50s or anything like that or the 40s someday. <laughs> so, um I can't say for sure that I've found the originals, but you know, I've gone back into older books and there are variations. You know, there's garlic, there's parsley, there's things like that. So, I'm sure that there if there are Italians listening to this, they're saying, "Duh, like of course Italians aren't a monolith." I'm talking about the broader strokes sure. and the image. Mm-hmm. So, um with the understanding that there is a lot of complexity in terms of using words authentic, original, mm-hmm. I think the way that I can best articulate this to uh, non-Italians is, or at least people in the United States, is like, okay, what is the authentic recipe for chicken noodle soup? You know, there isn't, we all know that, like, it's the one that you cooked at home, or it's not really an authenticity thing. It's just the way you make it, you know? And um, I mean, there. if you start throwing weird stuff in there, maybe it's not chicken noodle soup anymore, but it's really a household to household thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what these books tend to reflect. And, and some books are more specific about saying that. Other books aren't as explicit. And um, But you can't just take it at face value. So, you know, once you start peeling back the layers, we we can see that authenticity is somewhat problematic as well when we talk about codifying recipes. Mm-hmm because that can negate something that's authentic to a neighborhood or a a city on the outskirts, you know, Um, not to mention somebody who's trying their best in another country (laughs) with the ingredients that are available to them. So um, I'm I'm generally against the idea. And yet at the same time, I don't want to do something wrong. So... (sighs) I I don't know if it's an issue with the audience or the media, how things are advertised, but we get told that this is the way Mm. and that there, in fact, is a way to do things and we just have to find it. You know, it's out there and we just have to find that one way and we have to dig through all these books and we have to look at a bunch of TV chefs or who else is saying this. It's, It's this quest it's like finding treasure <laughs> you know and oh, i see what you mean now uh, yeah. yeah so you're kind of bombarded with this concept of authenticity but it's based on the false premise that a true version exists in this case it maybe doesn't there isn't such a thing yeah. well i mean also going back to how home cooking has historically been a lot of people didn't even reference recipes at all while they were cooking, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, it could be different from day to day, or it was really just tailored to somebody's taste. Yeah. And so I wouldn't want the quest for the perfect recipe to get in the way of finding your recipe. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Tina and what she did with the ragola bolognese. And that's eventually what she ended up doing. She made her recipe. Yeah. What if I make her recipe and I'm like, mm, maybe I want to throw this in here, or maybe I want to put a little less of that in here, you know? then it's my recipe. <laughs> and, and so I think that that's, 
um, I wouldn't want people to lose the spirit of that or understanding that you have to adjust as you go, especially with older books where, and I've seen this a lot, they don't tell you the temperature of the oven. <laughs> they don't tell you, you know, you have to, you have to be a cook, you yeah. know, and I can't think of anything specific off the top of my head, but I feel like there have been moments where I've made a recipe that's supposed to be the real deal. And it's not that it's bad, but I'm like, Mm, I want a little more of this. Mm. I want to put more cheese in it. I want to, you know. That's exactly how cooking works, really. And actually, Frank Fariello as well uh, talks about that a lot and is another uh, of my sources. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he did talk about authenticity as well in a, in a past episode. And um, it really, cooking is more like this, this discovery. Uh, that it's kind of wrong, if you want, especially with Italian food, to even put down ingredients and in quantities is, is a lot like what tastes good to you and how we interpret the dish. Uh, so there's always an interpretation. Every restaurant makes the dish in a different way. Uh, you know, they try to make it consistently, but it's their own version. So um, it is kind of wrong to boil it down to one recipe. Uh, of course, Frank does it, uh, but he's to give one example of the way he makes it. So and yeah. that, that's the only thing you can really do, I think. And the framework can be very helpful. And you know, it's teetering on this edge of not wanting to be beholden to one recipe, but also understanding that people outside of Italy aren't growing up maybe with a nonna teaching them what to do. Yeah. And so they have to follow a recipe. But, and so there's this fear of deviation, mm. unless there's just something that's completely, I, I guess I could say one example would be um, Oretta Zanini de Vita um, has a pasta book that is sauces and shapes. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. And she also has another book called um, Pope's Peasants and Shepherds, which is about food of Lazio. And she's a historian. She's very well-respected. I love her writing. And she has this cacio e pepe recipe that shows up in both books that has an astronomical amount of pepper in it. Oh, like, cause it's, and it's, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's just like for me, that's a lot of pepper. Like I know pepper is supposed to be the star, but you know, if, if I weren't allowed to tone it down, I would be kind of turned off by that. You know, Diana, I'm going to interrupt (laughs) you here because um, Uh I've had one dish, uh, one of the few dishes in my life that I sent back. I hate doing that. I never sent. (laughs) And this was a, (laughs) was a cacio pepe in a Vancouver uh, restaurant. Um, where there was so much pepper that the dish was pretty much gray. And uh, mm-hmm. it was not only, you know, pepper has its distinct flavor besides being spicy. And that was so overwhelming that it was stronger than the cheese. Uh, so and it, it was inedible, uh, really. So I wonder if they used uh, this Maybe. recipe you mentioned. No. Maybe it's just a typo. Maybe it's the, the, the editor messed up. Well, it's in both books. Like, that's oh, the boy. thing. So, because I, I cross referenced it. And, but like, all the other recipes are fine. So, uh, but I don't think even Oretta would say, like, you have to keep this quantity of pepper or else, you know, I, I, I don't think that that's the spirit of things. So, mm-hmm. Um, especially from somebody with a historical background like she has, um, I think she's very understanding of the fact that things will vary from home to home. But I mean, and it's very important to me because I didn't have a grandparent showing me what to do. 
I also have to trust recipes too. And my dad cooked very strictly out of Marcella Hazan's essentials of Italian cooking. And I can't emphasize enough what I mean when I say 100% of the food that I ate growing up with my dad (laughs) was from that book. Like, I'm not kidding. Um, (laughs) With the exception of baking from Carol Fields, the Italian baker, those are the only two books. Even though he had a shelf of cookbooks, it was only those books that he ever used. For example, Marcella has this Bucatini alla Matriciana recipe Mm -hmm. that I would say is representative of kind of this household to household thing. And mind you, my dad is born and raised in Rome and it has white wine and onion in it. Hmm. And I know some people say, no, never. And yet that's the recipe that I grew up with. My Roman dad was okay with it. And I know other people who are fine with that too. And so that is the recipe that I continue to make because that was in my household and I'm nostalgic for it. You can't substitute a recipe for that, no matter how quote unquote authentic original it is. You have to, your memory is, is a huge role in what you eat. Sure. What you keep. But I think that dish is within the parameters of uh, the traditional uh, Bucatini alla Matriciana, I think. I mean, I'm not from Rome, but your dad grew up eating this dish and and yes um, i am pretty confident that it's still something that sits within those parameters and i think that's again going back to getting the dish and something tian prestia as well talks about like once you find those parameters yes there are variations but there are variations on a theme so it's important to find the theme first yeah. And I mean, that goes back to all the musical examples that we can think of. Yeah, um, exactly. Coming from my background as well, you know, theme and variations is a style of writing. And, you know, and we talk about sonata form as well, where you, you there's the exposition where you start with a theme and then you elaborate it. And um, it's it's very connected to that need that people have. I don't want to say for a formula, but at least a framework. Mm -hmm. And you can be as creative as you can, as long as you have almost limitations to work with, you know, being limited can get you somewhere that you never would have expected. And so that's the whole, you know, accepted variations thing Mm -hmm. where um, we all know that from household to household, things can change. So with a matriciana, you know, we know Okay, some people put onions, some people put wine, some people put both, some people put neither. But we're not talking about putting, you know, cream and asparagus and broccoli and broth in it. You know, like we know that that's absolutely out of the question. So we can scream at each other all we want about the onion and wine. But at least we know that that's what we're working with. (laughs) Exactly. And if you do put uh, something else in it, you will call it a variation of uh, Bucatina La Matriciana. Hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) I mean, I'm a stickler for that. And I like to put some labels on things. You know, when you see the dish, you know, whether it's a good rendition or a bad one, you can tell, yes, this is a matriciana mm-hmm. or no, this is something else, but I wouldn't call it a matriciana at all. So I think Italians maybe, especially, you know, from the region where the dish is uh, popular, uh, can do that and can taste it and say, yeah, this is a good variation or a good interpretation of, of this dish. Or is it something else? I like it. I don't like it, but I don't have a name for it. So I think this is maybe, and that's maybe coming to a conclusion as well for this episode. Uh, I suppose 
maybe the answer to our question, which is maybe not, maybe there isn't a an original, but we can hope to define a style, maybe with one example. Yeah, I think style is important, you know, and going back to that simplicity, what makes Italian food, Italian food right. to an extent, I mean, with the understanding that regions are very different, different identities, different cultures, different traditions, which in a sense reveals a flaw in these massive books that are very popular, these one-stop shops that have 2000 recipes and try to encompass everything is that there, some things are going to fall through the cracks. Some details are going to be here and there, and maybe we're just not being specific enough than our choice of books. Mm-hmm. But um, we can get at least down to some ingredients and which yeah. ones are not in there. But then you can play around with the quantities. You can play around with some things. You know, do I put yolks only in my carbonara or do I put the whole egg? You know, um, yeah. Yeah. things like that. And and I feel like we expect too much of our sources. I feel like we overlay this desire for authenticity onto Mm. sources that weren't necessarily even promising that explicitly. (laughs) True. And and, it's like the Bible. We think this needs to be the Bible. I'm sure Marcella didn't mean it that way. Or, you know, sometimes, for example, um, Anna Gosetti della Salda, she has Le Ricette Regionali Italiane, which is a very well-respected book in Italy. There's no English translation. Mm -hmm. I love that book. And, you know, the carbonara has garlic in it, which isn't, I'm not saying... And therefore, don't trust this book. But she says something very important in the introduction Mm -hmm. of the book, which is like kilometer by kilometer, recipes, even traditional recipes can vary. And every family has their own way of doing it that they will say is the way to do it. (laughs) And she trusts her sources because she traveled all over to, to compile this book. And she even traveled again to update the book in subsequent editions. But she talks about how she trusts these sources so she says that these are authentic and original maybe they're authentic to that household they are original to that um or that place and i don't need to sit back and try and discredit that we want to get to a point where we can educate people and to have common sense but At the end of the day, we ask too much of a world that gives us an amazing amount of information even before the internet was available. Mm -hmm. So, you know, put in perspective. (laughs) That's a beautiful way to say it, Diana. Yeah, I I like that traditional and authentic in your family. And yes, you're going to be proud of it. You may speak as if it was the only version, especially if you become a blogger and you start talking about it. You'll talk about your grandma's version as the version, the ultimate yeah. version. But really, um, uh, you know, if, you, if you're really honest uh, to yourself and uh, to your readers, you should probably say, this is my grandma's. My grandma was great, but, you know, that's not just my grandma. There's a lot of versions around there. Yeah. And we're human beings. So, like, you know, it's like reading music. You're not supposed to sing something just like it's coming off the paper, like a computer. You, you put life into it. You know, mm-hmm. so I think we shouldn't get too hung up on that and find our own way of doing it, too, because that could be where the real fun is at the end of the day. Like, it's fascinating to dive into these things. And again, I'm not an I'm not an author. I'm not a, a source. 
I'm not a scholar on any of it, but it is really, it piques my curiosity Mm -hmm, to observe things, observe the fact that there have been trends that come and go in Italy and not everything stays. There are recipes that die a horrible death because they are horrible and they should never (laughs) be made. (laughs) So this, again, this kind of myth that we impose on Italian cooking as being this monolith of, you know, perfection or um, specificity Mm. is an illusion, you know? So, so let go a little. <laughs> Thanks for breaking that down. Yeah, this is this is really significant. Thanks so much, Diana. This is uh, again, the book can still give you, um, you know, whether it says is is the ultimate or not. It's still if it's a good book and describes a good dish in terms of the proportions of the ingredients and the basic technique, which is to be made may try to pass on the style that is intended for this dish. So, may. A good book will communicate a little bit how to get the dish. Yeah. It's not just, you know, do this for 30 seconds, do this for a minute, do, do, add this much, and then, you know, it should be better than that. But when a, a book does that, it's done its job. It's able to mm-hmm. kind of pass on uh, the essence of the of the dish to somebody who has never experienced it in real life or especially being made in front of them like we we have from our families for certain dishes and the way they mm-hmm. made them uh, but yeah so that's what the books can do and uh, and that's what we should be looking for not the ultimate version <laughs> that's not what uh yeah what this is yeah. there's no ultimate version awesome exactly. Diana. what to end this episode which is uh, way over time um What's coming up for you? Can you give us a sneak peek of where your um, cookbook project is going next or anything else? Well, I'm in the middle of doing another obscure book right now or somewhat obscure, at least for people outside of Italy. Um, I'm struggling through it. You know, some some books are amazing. There are some that are not amazing. This might be one of them. Um, <laughs> but I, I do plan on keeping up this project, which, by the way, I don't think I ever really talked about. It's two weeks. I spend two weeks on a cookbook. I feel like one week is not long enough and a month is excessive. Um, <laughs> especially when it's bad. <laughs> yeah. And especially, yes. Um, I mean, more specifically, I try to do 14 recipes in 14 days. I'm still a normal human being. So sometimes I I color outside those lines like Mm -hmm. right now. Um, But I plan on keeping on doing this with Italian books specifically. I, you know, when I started my blog, I was kind of straddling the edge of, you know, an American identity, Italian identity, but I think squarely, I'm focusing on more Italian food. I would love to try different sources now. Right now, I've only focused on Italian language books, mm-hmm. but I want to explore some of the English language books as well. Um, I don't know where to go with that yet, um, but it, it's it's a you know there are a lot of decisions because I have a lot of books. I have a problem, really. It's it's excessive, but um, <laughs> um, that. And slash or I would like to start getting into some of the classics a bit. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. I, I haven't avoided them because I don't want them. They're just obnoxiously expensive to yeah. get you know, <laughs> um, physical copies of. But yeah, I, I do plan on continuing to do this until my boyfriend decides it's enough. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> he will eat it anyway. He will. Um, but 
I've been having a lot of fun because it also means that I'm using my books because I'm a compulsive spender, I guess you could say. (laughs) And I will buy a book before I even start reading the last one I bought. Um, So this has been a really good way to use my collection and share with people who are interested as well, because I think I've kind of hit on something that's a little different. Yes, you have. You've formed a community around you and uh, it's really, it's really resonating. It's awesome. Fantastic work. It's really fun. I mean, there could be worse communities to be part of. (laughs) (laughs) No, thanks so much for doing that. This is a wonderful idea, very original and something that is uh, becoming very trendy. So go check out, um, (laughs) I'll put all the links, uh, Diana's work. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for this episode. It's a pleasure talking with you and uh, working on this project. There's probably is much material here for uh, a book itself on books, <laughs> but oh, yeah. uh, we are, we're not scholars. Yes. So yeah, we'll just keep it that way. We'll skip it to a just chat. Just having fun. A conversation. <laughs> just having fun. So again, if you have any um, uh, comments on this, uh, there's usual ways to get in touch with me or with Diana. You'll find us easily. Uh, please do tell us whether you agree or disagree. What is your experience with cookbooks? And uh, as always, if you like the show, please give it a star. There are ways to do that too. They're not trivial, but you can find them if you if you care. Thanks so much again, Diana, and best of luck with everything. Thank you. Grazie. <laughs> Fantastico. Grazie ancora. A presto. A presto. Ciao, ciao. Ciao.